saying there's a note down here, but it's not for me. <clears throat> Just double checking. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 18. We are going to be looking at the entire chapter of the book of, of the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18, but for our reading this morning, we're going to focus in on the verses 25 through to verse 32. <clears throat> so again, this is Ezekiel chapter 18 beginning in verse 25 and going through to verse 32. And as we remain standing, the word of God says this. It says, Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is not your ways that are not right? <coughs> when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies because of it, for his iniquity which has been committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions, which he had committed, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. <coughs> but the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not right. Are, not my, are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block for you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let us pray together. Our gracious God and King, we come before you now, God, and we praise you for who you are. <coughs> we praise you that you are a God of mercy. God, we praise you that you have not given up on us at any point, and yet even today you are calling out to us to repent and live. Father God, I pray that as we dive into this text and into this chapter today, that we will not seek to pass blame on other people or to apply what we hear today to other people. But Lord, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts. Lord, that you would knock down walls, that you would melt steel, that you would bend iron, and that you would transform us from the inside out. And God, I pray through that we might truly repent and seek after you with all our hearts. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse my cough today. Several years ago, uh, I started to see a picture, or really a list, begin to pop up on social media everywhere that, that we went, and, and every, you know, every day that we looked at it. And it was something that really caught my eye, because it's one of those few things that I had to agree with. And the list was titled, Three Ways to Fail at Everything in Life. Now, that's an interesting title, I think, for most. Yes, little ones, you can go. Uh, I think that's an interesting title. If anything, I would think that most people's desire in life is not to fail at everything. And yet, this list exists, and I think it probably, and, and I'm sure you know, this exists as a way to point out bad, if not toxic, habits that people have that is keeping them from moving on and moving forward. Three ways to fail at everything in life included these three things. Number one, complain about everything. <coughs> Number two, blame others for your problems. 
And number three, never be grateful. Now, I have to be honest with you. I could get on board with this list. This one makes sense to me, and I would have to agree that, that these are three things that if you take on these, these attitudes and these habits, there's a good chance that you are never going to ever be able to move forward and be successful in life or really in anything. See, it's all about a mindset, isn't it? These three things represent a way that people think and a way that people view the world. These things, complain, blame others, and, and be ungrateful, have a mindset that says, I am always right, and no matter what, I am always right. And if anybody at any point disagrees with me or has a problem with me or tries to help me in any way, shape, or form that I don't like, then they are wrong. And not only are they wrong, but they're bad. And they're my enemy. And now I have to be hostile towards them. If we are honest, we all know people like that. In fact, I would wager, as I gave that list, as I explained that mindset, you probably thought in your head, oh, that sounds just like so-and-so. And, and you know what? I'm guilty of that too. Make no mistake, when I read that list, there are people that pop into my head, and embarrassingly, it's not me. Because if we're really, really honest, these things apply to us as well. Maybe not all the time, <coughs> but definitely some of the time. We see these habits, we see these things going on, and what's interesting about it is as we go through Scripture, we see these attitudes and these mindsets come up again and again and again, beginning all the way back in Genesis 3. These things are evidence of the fall. And these are mindsets that we begin to take on when we begin to hand ourselves over to sin and to the mindset that Satan wants us to have. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God begins to address this mindset and this habit in the nation of Israel during the exile. They have begun to, to say things. In fact, they have a proverb now that they've been saying for quite some time that has gotten, that's gained some popularity. And the main point of that, that proverb and the main thing behind all that is, it's not my fault. Now, have you ever had a coworker or a child or a coworker that acted like a child that everything was not their fault? It's frustrating, right? And that's exactly what God is dealing with in our passage. And I've got to give him credit. One of the most amazing things about this passage, this passage is that God doesn't respond to Israel like a frustrated parent. But he responds like a loving father. So let's get into this text and let's begin to understand what this proverb is and what led to everything that Ezekiel has already said in our reading today. If we go all the way back to the beginning... <coughs> And you can turn with me there to Ezekiel 18, verse 2. We are introduced to the proverb that has found popularity among the exiled Jews and the people of Israel. It reads this way. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Some of your translations may also read it or have a note that says, but the children's teeth are made dull. Now, 
we have to ask ourselves, what is, it, what is being said here? Well, that term, the children's teeth are set on edge, that, that phrase, set on edge, means that they are irritated, that they are upset, that they are the ones that have the reaction. Imagine it this way. He's saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children are the one who pucker. That makes a little bit more sense to us today. And the meaning of that proverb is, our fathers, our ancestors, were the ones who committed the sin, who did the bad thing, who acted out against God, but we are the ones who are receiving the punishment. The Jews believed that they were being punished not for what they had done and not for their sinful actions and attitudes, but rather they were being punished for what their ancestors had done and that they were basically innocent of everything. They were just receiving all of the backlash. Now, again... We hear this all the time. This is not a new mindset for us. It goes back to those, that list that says one of the things we do is blame others for your problems. <clears throat> and that is exactly what this proverb is doing. It's saying it's not our fault. Our ancestors did this. They were the ones acting a fool. And now we have to deal with it. Interestingly enough, this idea did not come out of nowhere. This is not something that they just came up with on their own, but this was really kind of a twisting of what God had already said. In fact, Ezekiel in chapter 16 points out the, the unfaithfulness of Israel. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> in chapter 16 points out the history of the unfaithfulness of Israel and lets them know that you, and what he's saying in that passage in, in Ezekiel 16 is, you have never got it right. And from the very beginning, you have been in rebellion and you have been fighting and you've been hostile towards me and towards my covenant. And even now you're this way. But what they heard was, oh, so it's their fault. I don't know any better. It's always been that way. Or as we like to say, the other excuse I hear way too often these days is, I didn't know. Meaning, it's not my fault. We can even go further back into the Old Testament, we can go to the book of the law. And in the Ten Commandments, we read these words. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. See, they had read passages like this and said, well, if God is, is, is uh, giving judgment and he is dealing with and he is addressing the sins of, of idolatry in this generation, he's going to do it to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So see, it's not our fault. But there's a problem with this belief. The people that Ezekiel is talking to are worshiping idols. They have not, it's not that they are innocent and that they are faithful to Yahweh and that they are keepers of the covenant, but they're just receiving the punishment. They are doing the same things that their fathers and their grandfathers and their distant ancestors had done. They just thought they were sneakier about it. Parents, have you ever had your kid do something that they thought was really sneaky? And you just thought to yourself, do you think I never tried that? 
One of my favorite sneaky stories of my kids. It was one of their birthdays. I won't say which one. And that night we were going to have a cake for them to celebrate their birthday. And as I was in the hallway, not far from the kitchen, I started to hear foil rattle. And I went, I won't say the name, but if you look at my children, you'll know very quickly. I heard this foil ratting and I said, dear sweet child, what are you doing in the kitchen? And my dear sweet child said, getting a banana. I don't remember our bananas being wrapped in foil. So I went to investigate. Why did I go to investigate? Because I know what a lie is. And I know that there have been times in my life where I have said anything to avoid suspicion. And as I rounded the corner, I saw this dear, sweet child with the frosting on the floor trying desperately to open up that foil lid. And when I said their name, which I will not give out right now, I saw her whole body, I gave away a little bit there, spasm all at once, and then she just sat down and started crying, busted. The reason we know these things is because we did these things. And what's interesting about Israel this time is they thought that they had covered up their idolatry. They worshipped in, in, in private. They made sure that only their, their closest friends maybe knew what they were doing or knew how they were showing um, some sort of favor towards other gods. And they thought for sure that they had successfully hidden it from both God and from Ezekiel. But they hadn't. And they were guilty of the same things their father had done. Now, on top of all this, this is a misunderstanding of the text at all. It's not saying that God is going to, that if, if, if this generation sins, that he's going to now punish this generation and this generation and this generation. But what he is saying is that your sin has an effect on other people. <clears throat> that your sin can affect your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. If anything, this commandment in the Ten Commandments is warning Israel that the moment they begin to even dabble in idolatry, that it will scoop them away and sweep them off into idolatrous practices that will go far beyond what the initial sin could have, sinner could have ever imagined. Guys, that's still true today. We talk about it all the time. And so often we hear and we see how one generation is faithful to the Lord. <coughs> they have a, a conversion experience and church is a priority and they, they make much of it and they, they disciple their children and they do as much as they can. But then suddenly the next generation is a little less interested. And sure, they go to church. And sure, they identify as a Christian. And sure, they do the things that a Christian is supposed to do. But they also leave it in the church building or even only do it when it's convenient and if the kids have other things going on over the weekend and they just need a day to relax then they'll take Sunday as a day to relax and then the next generation they identify as Christian but they practice a Christianity of convenience and they go to church when it's what they want to do and it's when they want to do it but they don't sacrifice. They don't 
serve. They go to church to be served. And if they show up at church maybe one week or two weeks a month and don't do any of the extra things, they think that they've lived a Christian life and they've done good. But the next generation sees the cognitive dissonance there. They recognize that what they're told about Jesus on Sunday is not what they see practiced every day. And then there becomes a generation that may identify as Christian, but they don't go to church. They don't read their Bible. They don't even know what it means to be a Christian. And finally, we get to a generation that has never heard the gospel, who doesn't know the Lord, and doesn't have a clue what happens on a church on Sunday morning. This is the proverb that, that they are addressing, and instead of recognizing the, 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 the effects and the weight of sin in their lives and calling and, and responding in repentance and, and faith, they instead look at it and say, it's not our fault. And the reason that we are the way we are today is not our fault, but our parents' fault and our grandparents' fault. And for that reason, we should not be held accountable. To this God speaks. And he says, no longer will you say this word. No longer will you act out and believe this proverb, but you are going to know this day that you are being held responsible for your sin and that it is not your parents' fault, that it is yours. The interesting thing about what God is saying here, see, he's, he's upsetting their proverb, and there may be a, a slight hint of that. Well, that's, that's good news, right? I'm not going to get punished for things that somebody else did. We like that, right? We're like, okay, well, that's good news. I'm glad I'm not getting punished for what other people have done. But then that forced Israel, and to be honest, it forces us to then say, well, how are we doing? And if we just look at ourselves... And if Israel continued to look at themselves, they weren't doing so good. And I imagine at that moment when he said, no longer will you say this, but you will bear the burden of your sin. And you will bear it entirely and completely upon yourself. Initially, they would have been like, okay, what? Because the reality was, is they weren't living for God. They, they had all of their secrets and all of the things going on and all the idolatry. And they now were being promised that they were going to get judged for that very thing. For us who live in the church age, we should hear in our mind the words of Romans 3.23 that says, that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are reminded in this passage and in God's response to the people in Ezekiel's time that they are going to deal with their sin and that everybody had sin that was going to be dealt with. The interesting thing is, is God has, has addressed this and multiple times this was very much so a spirit of the time. Jeremiah, Ezekiel's contemporary, actually had these words to say. He said, why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. <laughs> so these people were complaining that what was happening to them was not fair. And he, God finally steps in and goes, what are you talking about? There is no scenario. There is no angle. There is no way that you're going to come to me 
That's what he means by contend with me and tell me that you should be in right standing with me, but it's not your fault. He says, all of you have transgressed. All of you have gone away from me. All of you are guilty of this idolatry. The reality is, is that this promise would have left them in a state of hopelessness. They knew that they were far from God, and now they were just going to have to wait for their punishment. (laughs) Imagine, that's what he's telling them. Oh, you think it's not your fault? Well, let me tell you, really think hard about the life you've lived. This is what God is saying to Israel. Do you really think you've earned my blessings and favor? That you've earned them. Look really hard. Do you really believe with all of your heart that you've earned my blessings and favor? There's no way they could have said yes. Heck, if we're honest with ourselves today, there's no way we could say yes. Can I really go before God and tell him, I I did it. I earned your blessings and favor. I earned your, your salvation. I earned to get to be with you for all of eternity. I did it. Yay! I can't say that. I sure as heck don't want to stand next to somebody who would say that. I think there's a lot of people that actually feel this hopelessness today. There are so many who are far from God, who fear that they've gone too far, (coughs) that they've wandered too far from God, and that because of that, that they cannot come back. We meet them. Maybe they said a prayer of salvation at vacation Bible school when they were nine. Maybe they, they, they grew up with their grandma taking them to church and then they got to high school or, or college or just got into the workforce and, and life took them in a different direction and temptation was, was crafty and, and swept them away. And they've been so far away from the Lord and from the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and from being in a community of believers that, that now they just look and if someone said, hey, would you like to go to church with me? They'd go, oh, no. I couldn't do that. If I walked into your church building, I'm sure the whole building would just fall down. We hear that, don't we? These are people in a state of hopelessness who believe that they have somehow wandered too far from God and that God has given up on them. With the news that, that Ezekiel gives them at this time, there was undoubtedly people who thought they were in the same state. And yet, look again at verse 21. And in verse 21, he says this, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and he observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. And he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he practiced, he will live. This passage is a beautiful example of what true repentance looks like. This is a person (coughs) who has acknowledged their sin. 
He doesn't try to blame others. He doesn't try to make excuses. He doesn't try to, to do, com complain about his current situation. He owns what he has done. He owns his sin. And then he turns away from those sinful practices and those sinful thoughts and those, that sinful mindset. And he begins to do the things that God has commanded him to do. See, this is what's so amazing about this passage is, is God steps in and he says, listen, you will be held accountable for what you have done, but. And you know me, I love buts in the Bible. Because it almost always transitions us from bad news to good news. And he says, you will pay the price and you will deal with the consequences of your sin, but if you will recognize your sin. If you will come to me in confession and repentance and change directions, turning away from your sin, you will live. And I love what even is said in that passage because he goes on to, to say these things. What powerful words. He says, all the transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. God is saying everything in your past, everything that has led you to this point, that has led to this distance between me and you, if you will just repent and begin to follow me, I will take all of those transgressions, I will take all of those sins, and I will cast them off into the abyss. They will no longer be relevant. They will no longer be called to mind. It will be as though they've never happened and you will live. Guys, this is the best news that anybody could ever hear in their entire life. This is why Paul wrote these words in Ephesians. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that it is not of yourself, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We even see that in verse 24 when he says, When the righteous man turns away from righteousness and commits iniquity and does what is an abomination, the things that the wicked man does, will he live? And he says, All the righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery. For he has committed the sin which he has committed. For them he will die. We're reminded when we put these two verses together that, that it is not what we do that is ultimately going to make us right with God, but, but the direction that we are pointed. And when we repent and when we turn to God, when we make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, when we put our faith and our hope and trust in the promises that Jesus gave us, then we will live. And we can trust in Him completely. And yes, we're going to mess up. And yes, we mess up. And sometimes we mess up for a long time. But praise be to God if we will repent and turn to Him and follow the Lord and do so with all of our heart to the best of our ability, we will live. <coughs> Specifically, we will be in eternity with Christ. This actually brings us to the very end of our passage, the part that we read. God tells them, that they will not be punished for the sins of others. 
And he tells them that if they repent and return to him, that he will blot out their sin, that he will no longer remember it. Yet, their response to this offer is what is going to make the difference for them. He offers this to them, and then look again at verse 25. He says, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. You know, we talk about that complaining (coughs) and being ungrateful. He says, listen, you are going to reap the consequences for your behavior, but there is still hope for you if you will repent and believe. And their response is, well, that's not fair. Now, that may sound crazy because you're like, this is the best news ever. What on earth is not fair about that? And if we were asking someone today that, they might say, I shouldn't have to do anything. If you were asking them in that day, they'd probably take it on someone. Well, I don't think it's fair that my neighbor so-and-so, who's lived a horrible life, if he just repents and starts living for God now, that you're going to forget his sins and he's going to be saved. I don't think that's fair. I want him to get punishment. They were so self-centered and they were so selfish that they didn't even like the idea that someone else might get grace. And this sounds crazy until we begin to think about the people that we refuse to share Christ with. When we, as a church family, say, I don't want to go over to those people. I'm not going to share Christ with that guy because he lives in a trailer park. I'm not going to share Christ with that person because he's a different uh, race than me. I'm not going to share Christ with that person because they're a Kansas Jayhawk. Or worse, a Duke fan. I'm not going to share Christ with that person. When we begin to put fences on the gospel, and we begin to decide in our hearts who we will and who we will not share Christ with, when we say things like, well, I just think it's more important that we, we focus all of our attention on right here and where we live, and let's not worry about the lost in, in Indianapolis or Brazil. I think it's most important that we focus right here. And we begin to put fences on the gospel. We're saying the same thing that the Israelites were saying. I think these people are worthy of your grace, but I don't think these people are. And what God does, and this is what I love about what God does. He doesn't, and, and I, you know, I'll let that one hang there. He doesn't even address it. They want to say, well, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's the way you should do it. And he looks right back at them and he says, repent. Repent and live. Instead of responding like that frustrated parent that I might have responded at, I don't care what your sister did. I'm talking about you might have been said might have been said this morning God turns to them and he says this he says I will judge you O house of Israel each according to his conduct and then he says repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that your iniquity may not be a stumbling block for you He says, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit for why will you die, O house of Israel? 
For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. See, this is a message that is not meant for others. This is a message meant for you. God is calling to each one of us to repent and live. Not to complain, not to blame, not to be ungrateful. God is making it abundantly clear to Israel that he has not cast them aside. He has not given up on them, nor has he condemned them. Instead, he pleads with them. Repent and live, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. He puts the ball back into their court and he says, please, 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 repent and live. I don't care about what other people are doing. I care about you. Now, he does care about those other people. But this message is not for other people. It is for you. And he's saying, I am begging you, repent and live. I don't want to see you condemned in your sin and separated from me for all eternity. The choice is yours. If you would repent, you will live. The same is true for us today. We have to ask ourselves today, how will we respond to God's call of repentance and belief? How will we respond to the good news that comes from the gospel? Will we believe Will we call out on the name of the Lord? Because we have the promises found in Romans 10, 13 that says, that says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or will you complain and blame and remain ungrateful? Which will ultimately lead you to judgment and condemnation. The Lord is pleading with you even now. Do you hear it? Do you feel the Holy Spirit calling out to you? Repent and live, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Will you respond? Will you turn from your sin and surrender your life to Christ? Let us pray. <coughs> Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. <coughs> God, we thank you so much for your grace and for your goodness. God, we stand in awe of your patience and long-suffering on our behalf. Lord, how we seem to consistently get it wrong again and again and again, and yet you, in your everlasting love, continue to plead with us to repent and live. God, I pray <coughs> that we are a people today who choose repentance. 
God, that we will turn away from our sin. And whether that's whether we are a believer who just needs to hand off some sin to you, or we are someone who is still living in our sin and desperately need to hear and to receive this good news, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will take to heart the statement, repent and live. And God, that that is exactly what we will do. Lord, we praise you for your grace. For God, we know that it is good and that we desperately need it. And so God, if there is anyone today who needs to give their life to you, we pray that today is the day that they do it. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.